Welcome to Unfederated, the podcast for freelancers, hosted by a brother and sister who are polar opposites, but both on their way to make a living doing what they love. My name is Rob Bettis. I'm your co-host, joined by my polar opposite sister, Sarah Sharp. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Great. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to talk about our uh, initial decisions to go solo. Yeah, today's show is all about the decision to go solo, um, which whether uh, you're already freelancing, you know that how big of a decision that was, or if you're on on the fence thinking about making the jump, um, uh, you, you absolutely know how difficult it was <laughs> or is. Um, so we're, we're, Sarah and I are each going to share our stories of, of what led us to make the jump, uh, to give some context of, uh, one, how we approached that decision and two, um, a little bit of the background of us each personally that kind of led us there. And just, um, for some context, uh, Rob and I are probably approached this decision though, similar in effect in very different ways. Um, growing up, we, um, just our parents often commented on how different our decision-making, uh, approaches were, we're really different people. Um, Rob is four and a half years older than me and, um, I guess always really belabored his decisions. And one story that I can't believe I'm even telling because Rob and I have gotten so sick of having it told in front of us, uh, our whole lives, but it's been told for a reason. So here I will muster through. I've probably never even told the little anecdote before because it's always just said while I'm rolling my eyes so hard, it makes my head hurt. But, um, when we were young, we went to Daytona every year for the NASCAR races. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> strong start. And before we would go, we would go uh, to Toys R Us. And um, we had like an eight and a half, wasn't it? Eight and a half hour car ride, Rob? Yeah, that sounds right. From Knoxville, Tennessee, where we were raised to Daytona. And um, our parents would give us $20 each to spend on a toy for like uh, keeping ourselves occupied on the drive or for, you know, keeping ourselves occupied when we got there. And, um, I would just always buy something and be done in like five minutes. Um, and, uh, Rob would always be there until closing. Like if I can get three Game Boy games, I can't get the like sand bucket. So I'll be occupied on the way there, but I won't be like occupied while I'm there. And then he'd be, you know, to the point of tears almost trying to figure out the best way to possibly get the like the $20 even. Um, and I think each of us were probably equally satisfied with whatever we purchased. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Rob? Yeah. Yeah. That's the sad reality of that story is <laughs> Sarah walks in, looks at something, shrugs her shoulders, heads to the register. And, uh, I'm, I'm making multiple laps around the store, almost in tears, like factoring in tax and doing every other aspect of, of, what became a very important decision to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that in a nutshell is, uh, how we have throughout our lives kind of approached our decision making differently. I think on the, um, you know, on the front end, it's a lot less stress for me. Um, sometimes that doesn't always play out on the back end, <laughs> but I can, I, I kind of just have always rolled with it. And Rod continues to make very, very, very careful and well-researched, um, decisions. Yep. Yep. I'm not familiar with buyer's remorse. I usually, um, deal with that on the front end. <laughs> <laughs> that but- makes sense. But yeah, so so as we dive into the notion of of making our decision to go solo, um, my uh, story is actually kind of unique as the in that it it was a very moment. Like I can I can point I can tell you where I was at, what I was doing. Like I, I knew the moment where I was like, this has to happen. Um, so prior to going solo, um, I spent. Uh, almost 10 years and a handful of different, uh, agencies, advertising agencies, digital and traditional. 
and uh, had kind of managerial roles in in many of those. And um, I had experienced over a season of time kind of feeling like I was bumping up against a, a dead end or a you know, glass ceiling or, or whatever. Um, I just, the, the opportunity for personal growth or increased responsibility or increased compensation really began to kind of trail off. And as I looked for different avenues to continue growing on my own career path, you know, it just it started to kind of be a, a, a painful thing where I, I just was consistent, consistently bumping up against these dead ends and, and just frustrated. Um, and if you're in that kind of season of life yourself, you, you know, you, you start to kind of look around and evaluate, um, things differently. You know, the, ro- the rosy red glasses of love come off and, and you start being really, uh, realistic about, um, your situation, sometimes pessimistic, but I like to think realistic. And so you start doing the thing. If you're like, if you're like me, you start saying, okay, well, you know, how many accounts am I managing? Like what, what kind of revenue does that look like? Like how, how how big is my role in, you know, in this company, what does that look like as a standalone thing? And, you know, you start looking at real numbers and you start thinking, gosh, like, you know, that's a lot, that's a lot more than, than I'm making, you know? And, um, you know, if you, you might enjoy your coworkers, you may not, you may enjoy the line of work you do, you may not, but you start looking at it and thinking, gosh, could, you know, could this be, done differently. And at some point, uh, in my own personal story, the clearest path to continue my personal improvement, my personal development became leaving, you know, getting out of there. Had just cause you're so meticulous in your decision-making and, um, everything, um, how had you gone through a period of time at the beginning of your career as a marketer where you had uh, not done the math on, Hey, I'm bringing this much money into the company and my salary is this amount. Um, you know, was there, was that new Intel to, to you or were you always aware of that kind of discrepancy? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So, um, I actually, my first job out of school was in a completely different industry than, than the one I work in now. And so, uh, when I made that initial transition and this is probably something we'll talk about, um, in a future episode, but when I made that transition, I knew I was going from a a more lucrative opportunity to a less lucrative opportunity. And so I, I took a big pay cut to, you know, a big compensation cut to, to make that transition, but it was what I wanted to do. And I felt like in the long term, it, it would, you know, play out better. And so, uh, for a season, when I first got started, I realized that, you know, I'd been working for five or six years and something completely unrelated. And so I had a lot of learning to do and I didn't view myself as someone that, you know, was carrying the, the bulk of the work. Right. And a couple of those moves from agency to agency, I I would start that new role and have an opportunity to learn a whole lot more, uh, from that new agency, all about their clients, all about their processes and, and the services that we're providing. And, and so I, I felt like each time I began with this kind of like, fun new beginning, you know, like where, I, where yeah. I was wearing those like rosy red glasses of love kind of thing. And everything looked like uh, rainbows and butterflies. And I have a tendency to like play that out for probably much longer than I should. I mean, it was, uh, it was Rachel often that was like, yeah, but I'm, I'm calling BS on that. Cause that's not actually happening. Or, you know, she was kind of the, uh, the sounding board on a lot of those things. And that's your wife. Yes. Yeah. Rachel is my wife. That's true. She's very clever. Uh Just sliding up in the podcast. Um, but yeah, so she, she kind of provided that, uh, sober reality perspective that, that was helpful. But, um, you know, at some point in time when the excitement wore off or when you looked around and you felt like, you know, you were, you were working too hard or, or shouldering too much of the load, you know, you immediately kind of go to that math and, um, you know, I never, you know, in creative fields as much with law fields too. Um, we build by the hour, but our productivity was never measured as such. You know, we, it was more of a right. project basis that we, they were, success was defined. Okay. So I think if I'd been in a situation where they're like, Oh, you have to work so many hours or, 
you know, that's how we're measuring your performance, then I would have probably gotten there faster if that makes sense. Yeah. But, that makes complete sense. I am that the person nearest to you um, is usually a really good barometer for for this type of thing. And I think that with my friends when they're dating somebody, you know, I don't even need to meet the person really. I can just tell from my friend how happy they are and, you know, what how they're doing in their life usually is a good indicator of how the relationship is. And I think that's a really good place to start for all of our listeners is like if your significant others are say, saying, hey, um, you're unhappy, maybe you should consider something else. Listen. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you get a little bit ingrained in like whatever the culture is or whatever the, the you know, the shtick that, that your employer's selling. And for a while, you can kind of ride that out, you know, and you can maybe even be a little, uh, you know, I don't know, manipulated. It's too strong of a word. But oh, you, yeah. You, you drink the Kool-Aid because yeah. you're there all the time. Yeah. And someone on the outside, you know, um, providing that counterbalance is, is super helpful. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so yeah, um, all that to say, I, I was managing an agency and, and things were going okay, but, um, those skills, those the scales started to tilt, right? Like uh, I started to kind of look around and consider all of the things and, and the people above me on the organizational chart were less and less involved. And it, so it felt more like I was shouldering more of the burden, which I was happy to do if I was being compensated for it. But in this case, you know, I don't think, uh, uh, the compensation and responsibility were, were, um, you know, parallel if you're charting them out. So, uh, began to look around and, and just kind of began to get frustrated. Um, as I would imagine many listeners, uh, have been or are, and, um, so it actually kind of culminated in one day, um, we had had some folks at a, a particular industry conference and um, they came back with kind of a lead, a friend of a friend, you know, that came about from that, that trade show. And so kind of landed on my desk and they were like, Hey, just pursue this, you know? So, um, you know, I kind of started with that lead being handed to me, but it was totally cold kind of on both sides. Like, you know, I didn't know them. They didn't know me. I wasn't at the trade show, whatever. So I began to, um, pursued that lead and actually over a series of several weeks and, and lots of phone calls and lots of emails, uh, that lead ended up becoming, um, uh, a, a client. And so when we, I, I remember distinctly the, the phone call that we were, um, the last phone call we had before, where they agreed to become a client. And, uh, I walked out of the conference room knowing that the, the agreement that we were, you know, that we had just, um, agreed upon, um, was actually significant for our agency, like the second largest probably in agent agency history, you know? Wow. And the, you know, the first largest included like a whole team of our, our folks like traveling across the country to meet with the people. And it was like a big, you know, roll out the red carpet kind of thing. And this one was just like me and, and one other team member on some phone calls, you know? And so I, I remember walking out of the conference room, like wanting to like throw my hands up in the air and be like, Yes. You know, like we just landed this like huge contract that makes it, you know, a, a significant, um, impact on the company. And I was wanting like confetti cannons to shoot off or maybe like, you know, <laughs> like right, some celebration. Yeah. It was nothing like, no, nope, Like nothing was said. Um, like days passed, like staff meetings passed, like where I said, Hey, we landed this client. And it was like nothing. Like no one ever said, good job. No one ever saying, you know, and, and this agreement was, uh, of a size that, you know, it was kind of one of those things that's like became a real sobering reality that like, like I just made X amount of money for the company. Right. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm never going to see like, I mean, th my compensation is not going to change, you know? Uh, and, and it's not only about that, but like, I, I didn't even get like an attaboy or, a, you know, like a high five or, um, you know, it was just, it was one of those just like wah, wah, wah kind of moments where it's just like, uh, so frustrating. And, and I remember distinctly like going back and sitting at my desk after that call and thinking like, man, this sucks. You, you know, like this isn't like, I don't want to do this. Like what, you know, um, it just, it became overwhelmingly apparent that, that 
like my future and the path, the trajectory I was on was, was not sustainable. You know, now that you tell that story, I remember getting a text message from you telling me that I mean like mm-hmm. womp womp and with a gif. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Of, I think it was a gif of somebody, um, trying to hive five uh, people and nobody having them back. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, uh, super familiar. Cause that's exactly, how I felt. And so, um, yeah, I just, I kind of left that, I guess, learning some lessons when, um, like doing that sales process with a, a big time client with, you know, a big time agreement made me realize that like I was certainly capable. I mean, I knew I was capable, capable of doing it at the median level of our agency, right? Like, the, you know, the average client or whatever, like felt super comfortable there. But with this being that like next tier client, it made me aware that I was capable of doing this at a higher level, which was awesome. And then also it made me um, realize I could do it on my own because that, that, you know, I was, and the, the notion that like I needed the, the whole company or the persona of the whole team or whatever needed to be there for it to be successful. was kind of dispelled a little bit. I mean, certainly I could be a lot more courageous in that moment when I have, you know, tons of talented people behind me that are going to, you know, make, make the work come true. Um, but you know, uh, plug and play whatever scope of work you want to like, you know, something that I'm historically not great at, which is the sales process. Like I just kind of overcame my fear in, in that situation. And, and then, you know, it also became really apparent to me as someone who kind of considered going out on my own for quite some time, you know, I looked at like, okay, I did a lot of the math of like, you know, okay, here's the average client I work with. How many of these would I need to be able to do this on my own? Right. And this was different. Cause I was like, Whoa, I could get like much less more legit clients and, and be way better off, you know, right. <laughs> which it, of course is obvious, but, uh, it, like in a real life situation that, that became known that I was like, gosh, if we had the right clients, like if we could shed all of our, like, you know, pain in the butt clients and high maintenance clients and just right. focus on, on the right ones. Um, you know, what would that mean? And, and of course in an agency, you, you rarely have the autonomy to make those decisions. Um, and, uh, but you know, on my own, um, I, I perhaps would. And so, um, I don't know, all those things just kind of really stuck out at me. And, and it, it's something that had kind of been running in the back of my mind for, for several months you know, came, came screeching to the front of my mind. That, yeah, that makes total sense. And I think if people are listening to this, thinking about going out on their own, maybe they're in a similar situation that we were, where, um, we were both like, Oh, is this real? Are these numbers real? (laughs) Is Mm -hmm. this actually doable? Because um, it just doesn't seem like it can be because surely if it were, everyone else would be doing it. And there has to be some asterisks on the the number where, you know, below it'll explain, but really that won't happen. You really won't make that amount of money. Um, And um, at least I know that you and I both have seen that those numbers really do play out. So it's really powerful to do the, the math over and over again. Um, do you think if they had been more, uh, if they had you know managed you better by giving you a bonus and being um, good managers of people <laughs> when you had landed that client, do you think that would have changed your decision? I, th- I think it, probably could have helped and and maybe not in that particular situation, but like kind of the broader, the broader conversation, like, you know, the sum total of all of the situations like that one, um, was probably a good way to put that, that if, if there was an opportunity to continue the path of, of growing, um, you know, I had actually part of my story that's a little bit beyond the scope of, of what we're talking about today is actually an, an, um, I attempted going solo much earlier in my career. Um, and, and it was unsuccessful. And so, uh, since that time I I've, you know, working all these agencies, I was kind of soaking up all this information of like, you know, if I ever wanted to do this again, what would I need to know? And a lot of it was like, you know, last time was so crappy. I don't want to do that again, you know? So like, 
like I still was a little wounded, I guess. Um, and to the extent that like things would have to get bad enough for it to really flip the switch for me to even consider that again. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure being applied to the switch, but, but that particular moment was, was what, you know, flipped it. Yeah. That, um, that seems true to me in my own experience as well. It's, um, because there's more uncertainty. I think it's, it takes like a greater build up to, um, kind of have a critical mass and uh, make it seem more feasible or more worth the risk. So mm-hmm. it's really good that they did that. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, you know, I, I'm of the personal belief that you can tell a lot about a company by the amount of talent that leaves it. Um, both good and bad, right? Like if you see a company that has a lot of talented people leaving, y- you can probably make some pretty fair assumptions about that company. Um, and similarly, I think if you've got a company with a lot of where people that lack talent aren't making it at that company, then it probably, you can probably assume some things about that company, you know? And, and so it was, you know, um, when you're in a company in a season where a lot of talented people are leaving, then, you, you know, that all of a sudden puts more and more pressure on the people that remain, you know, and there's kind of this, this natural, um, you know, uh, equilibrium that's found in that situation, you know? And so, um, that was certainly part of, of my decision to leave and, and probably part of, of the, you know, scales being, being, um, tipped. tipped yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One one more question. Uh, <laughs> do you think that um, being in digital marketing, um, being that that is uh, as compared with law, me being a lawyer, um, it, you know, digital marketing is a more new profession. Do you think that that impacts fewer opportunities for a- advancement in your field? Um yeah, it's certainly where I'm at. It does. Um, there's, there's really the nature of my area. Um, the part of the country, you mean Chattanooga. Yeah. Yeah. The part of the country I'm in is that, um, of a certain level so far, it's been really obvious that if, if people wanted to grow and, and even beyond just digital marketing, even like graphic design or, or product design and, and like some of the other creative spectrum, you know, kind of opportunities, like those folks at a certain point had to leave town, right? Like they ended up at the, at the least in Nashville or Atlanta. And if not, you know, New York or Silicon Valley. And and there's dozens of examples to point to of, of folks I knew who made those moves, but, and our, you know, our community or whatever was very, um, still is, I think to a large degree, much more inclined to just hire some kid out of college and pay them not much money at all. And a lot, be comfortable with them failing some, you know? Right. Um, and, and probably a lot of that stems from managers that don't know the difference of, of good and bad work, you know? Um, and just an overall lack of understanding of the, of the different trades. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's very much the case. And, and even I was in a position where it's like, okay, well, if I want to continue growing, you know, I've maxed out Chattanooga. So where else could I go? And, um, you know, kind of dawn on me, like I don't have to go anywhere, you know, like the, most of the clients I work with aren't even in town. And so it doesn't really matter where I'm at. Um, if I'm willing to, you know, if I can find people that are willing to work with me remotely, then, then, you know, I'm not limited by the agency I work at or the policies we have. And I can just go look for the clients I want to work with. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about most of those things in your industry. Yeah. Yeah. So what about, uh, what about you? What's, uh, yeah. what, what was your, your story to jump? Me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, you know, very essentially, uh, you and I being so different, um, I had much more of a slow build, uh, realization. Um, you know, I'm an attorney. I started practicing law when I was really young, um, compared to my peers, because as you may recall, I went through school really fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I graduated in December of 2011 and I moved straight to Denver. Um, and, um, I'd been practicing for a couple of years when 
my uh, the firm I was at got acquired by a larger firm that was a regional firm. Um, and that regional firm, I, I started practicing business law for the first time instead of litigation. So I was doing more corporate work and working with actual businesses. And I was really excited about that. So I was reading everything I could on just business generally and really trying to understand my clients. I had a list of them I would keep on a sticky note of all my business clients specifically. And there weren't that many starting out, but I had a list I kept on my monitor. And every single day I read through across every single name of those clients and tried to do something to like move their issue forward, um, whether it was just research something that was relevant to them or shoot them an email or, you know, just recognize, okay, well, I've done everything I can do the balls in their court. And every single day I would do that just to try to really grow those. And um, naturally, that made me start looking around at the business that I was working for, which was a regional law firm. And I know, Rob, I called you a bunch um, kind of complaining for sure complaining <laughs> because they were all of these just unbelievable. I mean, the first, I guess my dad always taught me, you know, know how much you're worth. Uh, and so when I got acquired, the first question I wanted to know uh, was, you know, how much do I cost you? And I asked that when I, you know, my practice group got acquired. So there was no interview process. So I, I had to like, uh, ask a bunch of different people, hey, how much do I cost? Because <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm making that amount of money for you, the law firm, so that I feel confident that I will keep my job. Um, and apparently nobody had ever <laughs> asked that before. And to this day, I was never given an answer but, uh, that, that was based in any reality. But um, there's a lot of numbers that go around about law firms, like it's uh, three times your or four times, depending um, your salary, uh, stuff like that. And um, it was pretty lopsided at this particular regional firm. Um, they, the way that they were structured, uh, the main office was in a different city and they had um, like I visited it twice and it was huge. They had a full library with a librarian staff and um, every single like a million conference rooms with gorgeous views with marble countertops and all of this stuff I literally never saw <laughs> except for twice. And I knew that, you know, all of the cost of these things that weren't even in the state I practice law and were um, being passed on to my business clients. And I really cared about their businesses and seeing those inflated. I mean, they weren't inflated, but, you know, seeing those large invoices go to the businesses um, and, and frankly, scare the businesses away from using lawyers a lot of times, uh, rightfully so, um, was frustrating to me. And so I started doing a lot of research on different um, mechanisms, you know, leaner models, different law firm models. And law, law is such a stodgy old um, field and industry. And, you know, so innovation is, is slow going. Um, the first, uh, law firm job I had, um, we used WordPress or no, not WordPress. What was the one? Oh, Rob, what was the Word one? Perfect. That, Word perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The icon was a cassette tape and it was, it was like, so janky and so old, but it was all that the partners would use. So you had to learn Word perfect. Um, so that predates Microsoft Word for all of you millennials. Um, hopefully you've never seen it. Um, so, you know, they're not the first to adopt new new plans. But um, I kind of had a, you know, a moment where I was building and I was very dissatisfied with um, just our ability to provide um, reasonable services to the type of clients I wanted to work with, similar to your experience, which were small and medium-sized businesses, because I think it's really interesting to work with those people. But it wasn't going to happen at this firm with our marble countertops and our full librarian staff that had worked there for 40 years. Um, and so um, I made a jump to a different firm to uh, resolve this issue where the issue was it was much worse <laughs> so 
<laughs> it did not help me at all resolve that issue, unfortunately. Um, I think that's something lawyers and, and other people do a lot is they try to, you know, they realize there's an issue and you think, well, maybe this other very similar employer has the answer. Um, and then they didn't. So um, I met this, uh, I was revisiting um, leaner models. There's this lean model Rob, I remember calling you and talking about how um, there needed to be a better solution for businesses and startups um, than the big firm. And yeah. I had done research and I had found this, maybe you found it, I don't know, called Axiom. It's this big group that places like general counsel lawyers with different companies. Um, they would hate to be described as a placement agency. Right, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> But um, I went to one of their happy hours while I was working at, at my final firm and I uh, in Denver and I met this woman, Liz Ortle, and um, she, she said, why are you here? And I said, well, you know, the business model seems broken to me. And she said, you should absolutely go out on your own. She had known me for like two seconds. She was like, pull out your phone, do the math. What's your billable rate? How many hours a week are you working? And she, you know, I came up with this unbelievable number, like the amount of, uh, you know, I'm billing because I had been working an average of, it was like when I averaged it out 68 hours a week or something for basically for five or six years, uh, maybe four or five years. Um, and uh, yeah, looking at how, <laughs> what I made and how many hours I actually needed to bill to make that same amount of money. It was like nine, like I needed to bill nine hours a week to make that amount of money. If not for the overhead, of course that's simplified math, but, um, you know, I left. And is, is it safe to say you could probably um, have afforded your own marble countertops and your own uh, freelancer office for the <laughs> the difference of the sixty eight and nine hours of work work yeah. week. Yeah, I could have gotten a couple mar. Uh, you know, let's say yeah, I could have a marble swivel chair if there I wanted go. one. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, oh gosh, it was a big, di- a really big difference. And I have this comically large uh, calculator that I've had at my desk since my first job. Um, and it's the kind you would like write hello on, you know, um, but upside down and (laughs) it was in my desk and, uh, you know, that, that happy hour was in June or something and it just clicked around in my head and every night I was in the office. I tried to make sure I was in the office between seven and seven every, um, and I never took a lunch. So it was like seven to seven. I, I very rarely saw sunlight. Um, I walked to and from work and, and usually that included Saturdays or I'd do a half day on a Saturday, Sunday. Um, and I, you know, it would get dark and when it would get dark and I realized I hadn't gone outside in the sunlight, I'd like pull that calculator back out <laughs> and run the numbers again. And then, you know, you manipulate them and you're like, well, what do I really need to live on? I mean, that's to make what I'm making now. What do I really need to live on? I haven't spent money you know, in six months because I haven't left the office. Yeah. I don't really, um, you know, you, you pare it down and you get your risk. You do the numbers uh, to the point where your risk is quite small. But, um, you know, I, uh, I was getting married, um, in August. And so I think I met Liz in June, um, and then just happened to become more and more unhappy in my current, um, situation, my law firm, which is probably, you know, just a topic for a different day. But, um, yeah, I'm guessing that volume of work probably, feels much more noticeable when you have people at home waiting for you versus if you do not. It does. It does. <laughs> and uh, obligations that are passing you by. And I, I say this like from time to time. I, my husband planned our entire wedding. His name is Walker. Um, I have get the sense people don't believe me <laughs> when I say that. Mm-hmm. But I know you do. Classic bride, classic (laughs) bride. No, in your case, it's uh, 100% true. And thankfully he did. Otherwise, um, it probably would have looked much different. It would have. I was like flowers. You know, I'm not a big fan of cut flowers because it's like, hey, go. Here you go. Watch this die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I would not have had flowers, for instance. 
um, or a dress that fit. Um, he really genuinely did everything. And it's not that I really wanted to do any of it, but at the same time, being unable to even show up at the venue um, or unable to, we bought the house around that same time. And I had genuinely never seen, I'd seen it once and I had to choose the colors for the entire house, but I'd been working so much and I hadn't been able to leave the office. So, I mean, having to make these crazy decisions, um, going to my bachelorette party with my friends who had, uh, devoted so much to be there, you know, we all went to Chicago and they paid all this money and we went and, <laughs> and in order to get off time to be there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I had worked like all day, every day for several weekends prior. And I was so tired when I got there that all I wanted to do was sleep. And I think that they would never say this, but it was probably a really lame bachelorette party. because All I wanted to do was just eat and sleep. And I was no fun whatsoever. And they'd all gone out of their way to see me. So things like that started to amplify how... Uh, you know, it wasn't the right environment for me. And then the feeling of, hey, do I want to enter into this next phase of my life this way? And right. kind of just like, do you know, that, to to use an idiom that apparently you can totally use in polite company in the Southeast, road hard and put up wet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's how you felt. That's how I felt mm-hmm. all the time. I rolled into my wedding, rode hard and put up wet, which is about horses. Get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah, sure, sure. Perverts. Sure. <laughs> um, so it, it's something that stands out to me as someone that, you know, my story ended with kind of feeling like there's a little bit of a dead end. But in in your profession, there are very clear tracks, right? Like partner tracks or or, or not partner tracks. And so your opportunity for advancement is very well laid out and very obvious most of the time. Um, how does, how did that factor into the, I mean, you know, the notion of unplugging from the time that you'd spent on that path, you know, I would assume there's a little bit of a, um, you know, sunk cost kind of assessment that you have to do when you think about unplugging and, and what you're giving up and by virtue of, of doing so. Well, I, you're absolutely right. And law is so weird because normally you would have, or in other industries, as I picture them, you have, um, you know, your direct supervisor and their, you know, their direct supervisor. And then above that, you might have an executive team or something. And so you can see different rungs on a ladder, but with law firms, it's, it's like associates and you have paralegals and legal assistants below you perhaps. Um, and then above you, you have maybe senior associates, but really it's just partners. So you have a ton of just people who are one step above you, but it's a very, very, very big step. Um, so I never met, um, one who I, I never got to work with one who was living the type of life that I wanted to live. Um, so you know, I kept kind of looking around for somebody who you want to see somebody who's ahead of you, who, you know, that, that you would strive for their life. Sure. And that, that wasn't happening. Um, we were very different people and that's largely, you know, that's a funny causation thing, right? Like I didn't want any of their lives, but maybe that was because we were just very different people <laughs> to begin with. And the type of person who becomes a partner these days, um, might be, you know, who thrives in that environment might be a very different person than me. And remember, I'm a woman and this is a male dominated field um, that was built by, you know, straight white men. Um, So it kind of favors those uh, lifestyles. um, For sure. I often felt um, a little bit not disadvantaged, but just in not having a stay at home spouse, um, made it harder to compete at times, in my opinion, um, with my male colleagues who, who did, for instance. Um, so those all, those all factored in, um, to my decision, but why not go somewhere else? Uh, and I thought about that a lot. Um, and I interviewed at several different companies because I was interested in business and working at different companies um, made a lot of sense to me. But ultimately, um, the companies that I was 
ultimately the decision became really clear that I should go out on my own and that it wasn't, even though you're unplugging from this track that you've been on since you took the LSATs <laughs> before you got into law school, then right. you got your job, you, your firm, you know, you got, I went from a small local firm to a regional firm to a international firm. So I was like doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And I always managed to hit every uh, goal way ahead of schedule. So to jump off of that was definitely the hardest point because it felt um, so scary to lose it. But what <laughs> helped me actually was I found about 22 people uh, who had gone out on their own. Um, I know this number because I later had to count up my uh, expenses for, <laughs> for my taxes. Freelancer pro tip. Yep. <laughs> Get that credit card early. It is very annoying to have to go through all of July and find every copy and every lunch. And, and so I, I buy my uh, assessment about 22 people who had done something similar. And I found numerous who had gone out on their own as lawyers, left big, medium-sized law firms, whatever, um, gone out on their own and then found cool, other, awesome, lucrative jobs elsewhere um, when it didn't work out or when they just were done with being solo. So I think if you look hard enough um, or at all, you will find that if you step out of the track you're on, um, that does not end your potential for, for advancement to somewhere really enviable. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of like a, at least in the legal field, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer that's perpetuated. Yeah. Sp speak a little bit to, like you mentioned that you were finding success in the work that you're doing, right? You're meeting your goals. You're above and beyond as far as the, the career path that you were on, you know, you're exceeding in that. Like how do you feel like, did that make it easier or harder to, to go, go solo? Like, was it uh, reaffirming that you could do it or was it a little bit like, I'm good at what I'm doing now? Why, you know, why chance it? Well, it had, had circumstances been different. I think it, it would have been the, the latter. <laughs> um, I had really gotten accustomed to, which is silly, you know, Rob, you know, um, me better than most people, but after, uh, graduating high school, um, and getting into college, uh, uh, there was a lot, um, I, I, you know, I went through college, uh, working with a 4.0. I got a good LSAT grade. I got into, uh, you know, a bunch of good schools and went to one with a really great full scholarship and graduated early from there and then got hired at a law firm where I was taking depositions my first year and I uh, went to my first jury trial within my first year, which is sooner than usual. And when we won that jury trial and and then, you know, all of a sudden I'm gone from the local to the regional and then the multinational. Um, and I'd just gotten really accustomed to getting a uh, positive feedback, yeah. <laughs> you know, and trying and get, you know, my solution for things was if it wasn't working, just double down, triple down. You know, there's always more hours in the day to devote to it Um, you know, care more than anyone else. Um, and when I got hired, you know, when I changed firms towards the end, I just happened to hit a firm where I didn't really have anyone who felt personally invested in my success, mm -hmm. um, which it's really hard to thrive without that. Um, and, and maybe, you know, had I hung out a little bit longer, I would have found that person, but I didn't. So I was really not thriving as hard as I used to. I, I was doing a bunch of work for a bunch of people and hitting a lot of metrics on hours, but I didn't feel like I was becoming a better lawyer. That's, that's interesting. Um, Seth Godin talks a lot about how the education system really re rewards compliance. And he's, <laughs> he's got, uh, there's actually a, a, a few talks he's given about what he would do if he was redesigning the education system that I'll, um, I'll include one in show notes cause they're great if you're interested in that. But that got me thinking, cause I had a, a little bit of similar experience. I excelled in school, you know, uh, all the way through, uh, college and, and grad school and going then into, uh, for me working for small businesses where 
people are wearing multiple hats and who your boss is is not always super clear. I mean, who the owner is is clear, but who your boss is isn't always clear. <laughs> and and all of a sudden you don't get that grade back on the test, right? Like, you know, you take tests and and months go by between oh, employee evaluations or any kind of measurable metric where you can know how you're performing. And and that's a that's that is certainly not solved by freelancing. Um, but it's, it's certainly an interesting dynamic in the workforce. It is, it is. And it's, you know, when you really ride high on all of these things and every year I build more hours than the one before it. And every year I was more profitable than the one before. And then all of a sudden I got in this firm where I wasn't getting that kind of support that I'd gotten before from those really wonderful, um, partners that had helped like build me up for their first several years. Um, and then I was just cranking away hours in a, you know, a dark room. It mm-hmm. was just like uh, all of a sudden stepping off one of those little walks at the airport where you're just like, whoa, okay, well, <laughs> this is going really slow and is not inspiring. And um, I didn't see an avenue from where I was to becoming a good lawyer by my definition. Yeah, um, sure. So. Well, so I, I think both of us would agree that freelancing isn't for everyone. And so a, a part of us sharing the story, one of the, our stories, one of the, the thoughts is that perhaps the implication is that it's a good solution for anyone that's, that's struggling with, um, with what direction their career is headed. And so I don't want to give that illusion, but one of the questions I'll ask with that in mind, uh, ask of you is, you know, now being however many years, how many years has it been that you've, you've been going solo? Just about two. Okay. Now, so we're about the same on that. Um, now being almost two years into it, if, if you could speak to yourself, you know, two-year-old Sarah, like what kind of, what would be your message uh, to her as she was exploring this idea of, of going out on your own? Like if you could have been one of those 22 people you talked to. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, I get to do this a lot. People ask me questions and usually I'm like, do it, do it. But I think Rob, you know, you, you point something very valuable out, which is it's not for everybody. And I think at least at this point, I think that the, um, the factor that has made it for me is, um, that just, I was really determined to make it work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, I hedged my bets as well as I could and that I left off and, and I have, a tendency. And, and this is what I tell myself. I'd remind myself going backwards. Hey, look at all of the weird decisions you've made in the past that you've somehow made work for you. <laughs> you yeah. Know? You've cobbled together into a successful yeah. string. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which if you, if you know me personally is very true. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, um, basically the most meaningful thing that anyone said to me right after I, um, you know, I had a, different, uh, adolescence and, uh, you know, kind of left home early and I didn't go the traditional college route and I went to community college and I was working and, and I was talking to my friend from high school, Kristen Gentry. And, um, I felt super inferior to her because she was going to wake forest and she was doing everything the right way. But, um, I will always remember she said, the cream rises to the top, Sarah Claire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was, I just thought about that a million times. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, I'm not saying I'm the cream, but I'm saying that, you know, um, if you look back in your track record, you know, learn from that. Has, has it worked out? Have you made things work out? You know, it, can you handle the failure? Um, of something and continue moving on. And if, if you can, if you can handle it, if it fails, then what do you have to lose? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I appreciate you using a second really Southern idiom in your <laughs> response. Um, but yeah, that would, isn't that like the notion of, uh, the who moved my cheese book, right? Like, uh, where, where the cream is really, um, determination more so than any, any particular, I think in the book, he like paddles and milk until it turns into butter and then walks out of the, yeah. You know, walks out of the cup or whatever. I don't know. It's been a while since I've read it. Um, but yeah, the, you know, your point being that if, if you're committed to be determined that that's going to take you 
I mean, that's, that's a key thing that, that should eliminate some fear of, of making that jump. Absolutely. And it, I mean, the way I always deal with, uh, uncertainty is by imagining the worst case scenario and then planning my response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to plan my response to that, which was be an Airbnb super host and drive for Uber. There you go. <laughs> I didn't have to, I didn't have to do those, but I am an Airbnb super uh-huh. host. So Multi, multifaceted. Yeah. Yeah. Many hats, many uh-huh. hats. Mm-hmm. How about you? What would you tell yourself in those moments? Like if you could capture yourself right as you were sitting down at your desk, completely unaccounted for after yeah, getting that huge uh, client for your agency. Yeah. With, with no confetti cannons. Yeah. Um, I had, just like through gifts, uh-huh. like typing, in, you know, no high five sad or whatever. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I think as a, as a planner, um, something I was guilty of and probably see a lot of other folks do is I think I was trying to plan my way to making this decision. And I think we've all had the spreadsheet, right? You alluded to it earlier that where we put, put down what this would look like as a business model. And we think, "Mm, I don't know. And you know, you spend years sometimes perfecting that spreadsheet as though the numbers are going to somehow influence you differently, you know? And, um, you know, I think you can plan your way to like 90% of the decision, but even, despite your, your best efforts, like at some point there, there includes, there requires the the need to just kind of make a big step, you know, um, kind of jump off the dock, so to speak. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think for me, I was kind of waiting for that other 10% to fall in place. And I think, you know, that probably delayed my process for longer than it should. And, and in all reality, um, you know, I think that's, that's just a reality I had to deal with. Um, I think another piece is, and this is probably more pragmatic, but I think if you're thinking this kind of way, like if you're listening to this podcast, like being really cautious of what you do and have signed along your way, uh, even if you're maybe a couple positions away, but are hoping that, you know, your 10 year plan includes going out on your own, um, being really cognizant of non-competes and kind of employee employer relationship kind of things along the way. Um, I would, I would really encourage that. Um, and you know, secondly, or I guess thirdly, um, I, I think I was really, uh, tried to be really above board and leaving. Um, and, and I, I have not regretted that. Um, I'd, I found myself in a situation where I'd actually, um, accidentally. So, um, a lot of, of, uh, the important employee paperwork that I'd signed with a previous employer was, was filled out incorrectly and, and subsequently invalid. Um, and so I found myself, confirmed. yes, com- <laughs> confirmed. confirmed by, by an attorney I know. Um, yeah. And I found myself in a position where I could have left day one and gone and been a competitor, you know, but, um, the town I live in is not big and that's not really, you know, that's not how I want to live my life, uh, and, and not the kind of reputation I want. And so I actually pretended as though I did have a non-compete and, and went and worked in an unrelated field for, for uh, almost a year to the day, just to kind of honor that you know, the spirit this, of the non-compete. Yeah. The spirit of the commitment, you know, I knew what I was signing when I signed it and wanted to be honorable in that. And, um, you know, but after a year was up, um, you know, pretended that that was that non-compete was up. And, and so having chosen that path when I probably could have been more aggressive and probably gotten started in this direction that I'm very thankful I'm on much sooner. Um, I'm, I, I have not regretted, taking that step and just kind of making sure that I'm doing things above board. Cause I, I wouldn't want, um, you know, it's hard enough to get started on your own. You don't need just blatant enemies, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so anytime you can kind of, uh, avoid burning bridges on the way out is, is time well spent. Yeah, that is. Um, I think that's such a good point. A look at your non-competes before you make any decisions. Um, 
B, I have people. That's not legal advice. This is not legal advice. <laughs> but I have people who are not lawyers who are looking for lawyers who call me all the time and they say, oh, I signed a non-compete, but I'm sure it's not valid. Non-competes are never valid. That's not true. I mean, maybe it is somewhere, but it's not where I am and it's not where I've ever seen it. So <laughs> don't assume that that's the case, unless you're just really lucky, like Rob, and you're yeah. just filled out totally wrong. Uh-huh. Um, you put your name in the wrong blank. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, that was an unusual circumstance. Um, great point. And I think just the spirit of leaving where you are in a good and respectful way is just better for you because it should be about the next opportunity, not about fleeing your current space, you know, like yeah. what's that, um, that song, the Avery Brothers? Uh, the weight of lies. Yeah. The weight of yeah. lies. Like yeah. you've got to, you've got to uh, make sure you're running towards something, not away from something. Um, and I think that that's a huge indicator of success as well is that you're, you're running towards it, not fleeing your last employer. Yeah. Um, and, and, and thinking of the possibility of like, what happens if this doesn't work? Like you'd hate to, you know, set the place on fire on your way out the door and find yourself <laughs> someday needing a place to land. You know, I mean, yeah. that's like doing so respectfully makes that a really obvious choice to re return to, um, that, that you're just kind of, you know, you're taking that away from yourself. So, um, I think that makes sense. Um, definitely Great. glad that I went that, that route. Yeah. Um, I really burned it down. So nice. <laughs> <I'm> nice. <just> <laughs> no. Same, same. It's good. Legal community is really small and, um, you know, everyone can have a grudge and I've seen it come up, uh, to bite other colleagues if they left under anything other than perfect terms, but don't let that stop you either. I think a lot of, especially my, um, female colleagues will, will say, Oh, everybody will be upset if I leave. I don't want to inconvenience anyone. And, um, people understand that you're leaving for an opportunity. Um, and they don't take it personally. No, but nobody in a professional context will take it personally that you're leaving to pursue another opportunity, especially if you do it in a respectful way. Yeah. And, and you've got to be fair to yourself as far as what the exchange, the second place with your, um, the employee employer exchange, right? Like, I mean, you're doing a service, they're paying you for that service, but to some degree you have to be fair about what your, um, responsibilities are there, you know, like, uh, if, if it makes it harder for other people when you leave, that's always going to be the case. Right. And there's nothing you can do to like, I mean, you can yeah. step out as gracefully and as helpfully as possible, but to some degree, it's always going to be going to have an impact unless you're just not an impactful employee. And then they probably will be glad to see you leave. But exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. if you're shouldering any responsibility, like uh, to me that, you know, that's a, that's a really common cop out. I hear for people, uh, an excuse for people that, that don't want to take that move. They kind of embellish all of, all of those, uh, soft, um, soft things around them, those soft right. skills and why that's gonna, uh, you know, be oh, some yeah. deterrent when it's not really. And I've left a couple of employers who I really loved working for and <laughs> I mean, they were not that broken up. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. You know, I know that they loved working with me and we had a great thing going and they were, but the, you know, it's work. It's, it's not, it's not family. Um, you can stay colleagues in the community. Um, people understand they've seen it happen enough that, you know, if you're new in your career, it might seem crazy, but really the world will keep turning and they will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned family there and that's like a soapbox of mine. Like, I, uh, uh, you know, companies that start using family terminology to describe their employees, uh, like that crawls all over me because really, uh, well, yeah. I mean, most of those people have a family at home, right. That are, they're, they're legit True. family, like they're legit spouse, they're legit children. And to their dogs that they have dog carriages for. <laughs> uh huh. Yes, the dog stroller. Um, like to to start influencing the minds of people that you work for to say that their responsibilities at the office are competing with the responsibilities they have at home. I I think is like I mean I understand why people do that, but if you're like I think a lot of people do that, 
you know, maliciously uh, or like it's almost a manipulation. And it's, uh, I think a, a good employer understands where your responsibility should lie. Right. And, and it like, you know, the family should take priority over overwork um, in, or in a reasonable a sense. So. I'd never thought about that before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah. if you work somewhere yeah. where that's happening, I always like to me that always flies up the flag of like, Oh, okay. Is this just a really screwed up situation or is it some well-meaning person that, that, right. just, you know, isn't thinking, but all right. Well, um, that's, that's a lot of information and it's a lot of, uh, kind of, hopefully some context to get to know us, um, a little bit better as, as your co-hosts and hopefully, um, provide a little bit of context as to how we got to where we are today. Um, next week we are going to talk about the pros and cons of freelancing, um, for folks that are still considering that jump. Um, we're starting the show at the beginning, um, uh, both figuratively and literally. And, and so if, if you are not quite freelancing or just brand new, I think these first couple episodes will be especially helpful to you. And then, um, we'll begin to just work through that, um, process as we, in our topics. Um, so our topics will mature, uh, with, with the freelancing career. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, I also want to mention two things to you as, as we cut out one, um, we, Sarah and I are always available, um, through the, the website, um, for the podcast and that's unfederated.studio. So if you want to give us any feedback about the show, have questions, um, we will in the future, um, uh, start answering some of those. And so, um, anything that comes to your mind as far as, tips or questions about, um, going solo and making this decision, things that helped you or, or things you can't get past as you're considering it, shoot those our way. And we'll try to, um, make that a part of a future show. Yeah, I, that's exciting. Find us on the interwebs. And also in addition to questions, just send us your opinions about things. I just want to know yeah. just your opinions. Yeah. Just helps us to know, know you guys better and, uh, always helpful. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks for joining this week, Sarah, good speaking with you and, um, look forward to talk to you next week. See you later, brother. Adios.